Back at the tail end of last year, when we in the BMJ were obsessing about our Christmas edition, the New England Journal of Medicine's national correspondent, Lisa Rosenbaum, published an article, The Letters More Crusade, Are We Overmedicalizing or Oversimplifying? The article aimed a broadside against those who are campaigning to end the overuse of medicine and overdiagnosis. This week in the BMJ, we've just published a rebuttal to that article. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor here at the BMJ, and in this podcast, I talk to the authors Steve Wollishan and Lisa Schwartz, both professors at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. Steve and Lisa have been friends with the BMJ for a long time. They help us in our editorial work, and they also sit on the board of Preventing Overdiagnosis, the conference that we co-run annually. Steve and Lisa's article carefully deconstructs some of the ideas advanced by Rosenbaum. But in this podcast, I really wanted to talk to them more about how separate camps are forming in this debate and how it is we can have a constructive conversation across that divide. Yeah, I, I've just sat down, I've read your essay, I've read um, Lisa Rosenbaum's essay, uh, and you know the points that you make in that seem to me as an insider within the BMJ incredibly obvious and clear, and I think I've heard you talk about these kind of things before, and especially at the overdiagnosis conference um that we we run you know that those themes are talked about and it just made me think god am i in a total bubble um i mean were you surprised to see the arguments that that lisa raised in her article published in the nejm (laughs) (laughs) i i guess um I mean, some of them, I mean, some some of, you know, the complexity and how hard it is and, you know, doing this on the ground, I think those are reasonable ones. The broad brush, I, I, I think we're still struggling a little bit to even completely understand her story. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, like as we said in the essay, she she definitely raises some important questions, but um, but I. I thought that um, we were surprised when we saw the title of her article, The Oversimplifying. Um, we were a little bit surprised because we thought that that was an unfair, we, we thought it was an unfair characterization. And then as we read the, the essay, it was a little bit hard. It's a little bit hard to summarize because um, there wasn't a clear um, argument. Some of the examples she used seemed to actually undermine the idea. And I, I just think it, the, the premise to begin with was a little bit unfair because I don't think anyone is saying, at least I don't think anyone, any of people in the leadership of this this area is saying that more is always worse or any expanded disease definitely is worse. It's like, you know, the, the black swan argument. If, mm. if I assert that all swans are white, I just have to show you one that's black and I've disproved your your hypothesis. But here, no one, no one has a hypothesis that more is always worse or that um you know an expanded definition is always worse the idea here is to try to generate scientific evidence and create um you know a research agenda try to answer questions so that people's decisions are based on evidence and they can they can make wise wise decisions Mm. i mean i suppose what i was thinking is as well you know her voice in the NEJM is maybe 
she won't be the only one that's that's thinking along that way um and have 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 you heard that kind of criticism before have you, do you think there's a a backlash against this movement happening a bit in screening sometimes there some of the screening proponents sometimes um Sometimes the arguments can get... But I think over time, I feel like there's become more balance in these arguments. I mean, I would say even within cancer screening, which was so virulent... Originally, it was... I mean, it was... You couldn't have a discussion about this. Like, at the very first, you know, back in the 90s, you know, and it was women should decide for themselves and, you know... um, You condemning women to death. You know, know. there was, like, violence that broke out at the meeting, (laughs) and, you know, know, that you're condemning people to death, and this, like, absolutism that anything that suggested um, that screening wasn't purely beneficial and that that might reduce screening rates, that there was a sense that you were going to create this huge public harm, and I feel like we are able to have much different discussions about screening now. So I would say that that part of it, um, it's interesting because she sort of gives a really short shrift to the overdiagnosis and cancer screening. I mean, that's like, you know, it's a clause. Um, when there's, I think, been a big body of work and I think really um, an evolution in positions. Like, I mean, you look at now the American Neurologic Association, right, and they're very much in, um, you know, sort of wanting to make sure that people aren't overtreated who are screened, right? And that there's active surveillance rather than immediate treatment because the balance of benefits and harms. And I, I think about when we started our careers, right, like 24 years ago, I mean, it was, they were such sort of staunch positions about screening and um, that you couldn't have, I think have those kinds of thoughtful dialogues about how do you um, maximize benefits and harms. It was just, you know, absolutism. So that piece of it, I would say, I think is more accepted. Um, Whether the public actually accepts it is is a different question. Um, But in terms of the medical community around cancer overdiagnosis, I feel like that actually has Evolution. evolution. I think that in terms of progress, I, I don't know. Um, so I guess the point is, and, and, and it's hard because she starts off at the beginning with talking about the low risk preoperative testing, which I don't think anyone, and it's hard to believe that she's even really arguing for now. So I guess it's hard to understand where what's contentious there. Um, sure. I mean, I was going to say, I think in the whole thing, there's there's a tone, a sort of defensiveness, and it's almost as if she feels like the movement that she's criticising has something against doctors or medicine in general, that the whole, you know, edifice um, is bad. Uh, and I just wondered, you know, as, as this campaign is, is growing, if that's something that... Um, you know, we need to think about. We need to 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 counter to reassure people that that that's not the case. Right. Well, I mean, we, uh, it's not in anyone's interest to generate you know nihilism. Um, that, that's for sure. But I, <clears throat> but I think generating a lot of healthy skepticism is a very good thing. And doctors should be looking carefully at their practice, and patients should be skeptical. But I think it is true that there can be you can have harm if people become nihilistic and don't believe um, that there's value in in things that have value. Mm. 
there's a story at the beginning of Rosa Bow's piece about her her time as a, a young junior, where it seemed like she did get the you know too much medicine overdiagnosis thing, um, yeah. but has gone the other way. Uh, and when we were at overdiagnosis in Montreal last year, we had a really interesting chat um, with someone called Stacy Carter about um, about how people sort of get turned on to this this you know how a social movement is built and she talked about a thing called a moral shock where there was a point in in someone's practice or life where suddenly something happens that really exposes the status quo and and makes people look at something in a different way um and i just wondered you know you guys your career has has been all about this now um did you have some sort of moral shock like that or, or what was it that brought you to yeah, 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 well, yeah. We, we came out of, <clears throat> so we were trained at NYU, American University, which BMJ had as the, they had a cover, they, when they published one of Jack Wimberg's articles about um, outliers, over, outliers for mm. um, days in the ICU at the end of life. And so, so they were by so far an outlier. <laughs> so there was the cover of the BMJ, NYU, our, where we trained. So that was what we were brought up in. And so when we came to Dartmouth, um, that was a, a culture shock. Well, I think there were two things. I mean, one was we because we had the idea that you had to be really compulsive about everything. And the better doctor was the more compulsive doctor. And um, and then the other thing was that we definitely had positive views on screening. We took care. We worked in the city hospital system and took care of a lot of poor immigrants. Mm. And we would show them love by giving them screening. And then when we came to start our fellowship and we started to understand the data and what we we're actually doing we were just so shocked like here we just finished training at you know and you know at a great program and yet we had a totally um wrong conception and you know that was sort of what motivates the beginning like we, how we got wrong but but on sort of we hadn't thought it through i mean mm. we hadn't thought of it both sides right um and then i i, I think that that was like we just finished training and we didn't really appreciate this. And then it was like, well, people really need to know this. And I think that became a big driver in our careers. Yeah. I mean, the idea that, you know, the, you know, um, it, the idea of like better safe than sorry, we assumed as many people assume that that means doing more when in fact, yeah, better safe than sorry might mean doing less. And so the idea that it's a two sided question is something that was our sort of moral shock when we, sort of met Jack and some of the other people here. Um, now, when I was reading the article, there was, you know, much like you, I, I couldn't understand where she was coming from and, and why she chose some of the examples that she chose which seemed to undermine her, her position. But one thing that she did say that I thought, well, you know, that is fair, is that, um, you know, if, if your whole focus is on harm reduction, minimising... Um, not doing anything new or or experimental, that you might lose some sort of innovation or, or change. Um, do you think that's a danger? And, and how do you think that has to be brought in or, you know, framed within overdiagnosis? Right. I mean, I think like all these things that you want to be able to see two sides, right? And that the, there are always two-sided questions, right? It's always the too fast, too slow in medicine, right? We have a couple of problems. One is that we're worried that we adopt things too quickly before we really know if they work. But then you say, okay, well, if it turned out it really worked and it's so, you know, there's innovation that we 
um, should be adopting those things more quickly. Um, but then we have the other problem is that we have lots of things that get adopted too quickly on the basis of insufficient evidence, and it's very hard to get things out of medicine once they've become part of standard practice. And so, um, you know, I think it's a good discussion to be having um, about the tension between, you know, not being, um, you know, reflexively against the new, um, but, it, but it should be a decision that's based on evidence, I think, rather than, um, you know, whether it's new or whether it's old or, you know, I mean, that it, I mean, at the heart of it, I think it's about trying to generate reasonable evidence before we start um, offering it to patients. And, and to revisit, because evidence evolves over time. So to revisit, you know, that's the whole idea behind these de-prescribing or de-implementation movements as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's that, not just the, the base assumption that all new things are going to be great and that that, that doesn't change. Um, and that brings me on to another point. I think, you know, um, there's talk of oversimplification in this article. And it seems to be almost that she's missed that her own perspective is oversimple in that there's an implication that all treatment is is better or or the default that all treatment is better is the right one or better than the default that do you see what i mean yes yeah, i mean we, we had a really hard time understanding that because it seems to be that she's saying okay the default to think that there might be harm is oversimplified, but let's now go back and believe that every diagnosis is a beneficial diagnosis and every procedure is a beneficial procedure, which seems like a vast oversimplification. Um, you know, the example that she gives about the cardiologist um, who recommends cath for every right. patient, um, I mean, I mean, clearly that can't be the right thing. I mean, it's that it's 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 sort of um, What's what do you procrustean bed or something? Yeah, <laughs> um, but it's um, the, the, the clearly it's, there's not only two ways to do this. That I mean, I think that I think many people who've been working in overdiagnosis and overtreatment know it's hard, right? These aren't intuitive ideas. It's much easier to sell ideas like earlier is better, new is better. The more we do for you, the safer you are. Those are just completely intuitive ideas. Um, because people don't want to have anticipated regret. There's something I could have done that I didn't do. Um, and it seems much easier um, to, to to live with the sin of doing something than not doing something. I mean, that's just how... how well, that's been the default That's culture. been the default culture. That's how we were trained. Again, it's uh, it would be an oversimplification to say that someone is saying that all, you know, all new diagnosis is bad, right. or testing or, is bad. Or, or there aren't lots of things that are in the gray zone, right, where it's not so clear that it's harmful um, or helpful. It's, you know, it's it, that there's a big gray zone. And I think that for people who've been working in this area and writing about it and thinking about its acceptability, the complexity um, is sort of front and center. I mean, I guess that, um, you know, she's talking maybe about the policy narrative about this idea that if we just, um, that there's a simple solution, which is just to um, cut the rates so that they're all the same, and then th that, that, that's, that solution isn't gonna work, right? Because we don't know how 
to wisely cut the rates. But I think that, again, that's an oversimplification that um, people are saying that because a lot of the reform efforts to pay hospitals and doctors differently are trying to actually um, start to move towards better measurements of whether these things have value, looking at the patient experience, um, but they're not just purely about um, cost savings. Although it often gets cast that, that way, um, the debate often is around cost saving, but it's also about preventing harm, you know, re reducing unnecessary exposure to care. That and I think it's also about giving the patient a central role as a decision maker in saying, you know, I understand what this does and doesn't offer and yeah. I, I want it or I don't want it. And it's, you know, we haven't been great at having those discussions yeah. routinely in medicine. And actually, so she talks about the Dartmouth Atlas. So Jack Winberg, who, you know, who who's, you know, the, the person behind the, the Atlas and the, the, all this discussion of var variation, his other main um, areas of shared decision making because you know, he, when when there are these um, areas where there's unwarranted variation, you know, variation in practice not based on evidence or patient preference, that's a problem. And he wants to tr that one of his goals was to try to develop mechanisms to enhance shared decision making, so doctors and patients could be clear about what the evidence is and what patient preferences are, so that people get the care that they that that's that they feel is best for them. Right. So even with the Atlas, I think that we were a little bit at sea there just because that's been such a central theme in Jack's work, which is, um, you know, sort of juxtaposing the variation with the need for better evidence and the need for more shared decision making. Um, so that it's not just a simplistic solution that we just slash, you know, slash these rates. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of another thread about, um, as you say, it's all about cost saving or it's all about reducing. And actually, we know that there is some people have a, a lack of medicine. They they don't have the ability to access the service. But I think that having thought about this um, in a few days since, since reading that article, it seems like lack of access to medicine is a it's about structural inequality uh, in our society whereas overdiagnosis is much more about decisions that individual do doctors do control and are right in front of them um so to talk about them almost at the same time doesn't really that they're, they're not mutually exclusive i suppose is the the point no they they but they're also um Reinforcing because doing too much takes you know it takes away resources and makes the, the problem of underuse and undercare um, worse and mm. you know less tra tractable. So they're clearly related. Iona Heath wrote a, a great piece for BMJ I think um, we should call underuse and overuse uh, conjoined twins. Absolutely, yeah, and that's that's great. I'll put the link in for people to read because uh, she was very thoughtful and and writes beautifully and. I, I, I was just going to say, actually, I just recently saw, um, we did a survey many years ago in the U.S. Um, about enthusiasm for cancer screening, um, where, you know, we asked people, you know, is screening almost always a good thing and, you know, overwhelming proportion of the population um, said yes. And, um, you know, would you even want to, you know, be screened for cancer for which nothing could be done? And still lots of people said yes. And then I, I just saw that 
um, somebody um, in England um, used our same questions to see what the current thinking was about these things. And um, (laughs) there was even more exuberance um, about screening. And so I think that it's also, I think, very clear that these are counterintuitive ideas. And it's also very hard, you know, I mean, it's you, the the stories of people who say my life is saved Mm. because I was screened are so powerful, but yet the overdiagnosis story is something that we know from a population basis, but not an individual. And so we don't have um, the same powerful stories out there. Um, So they're not the same kind of emotional messages. You know, and 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 they're challenging things to weigh off against each other. Mm. Um, so, just looking at this argument in the in the NEGM lambasting what we at the BMJ think are are very sensible things. Um, you know, this isn't the first. There, there's also been the ones about conflicts of interest and open data. Um, and I just wonder. I haven't thought this through properly, but it seems like there is a parallel between like it's almost a division along political lines and the same sort of polarization is is maybe happening do you see that or do you think um as you said that that's at the beginning that we've um we're becoming to much more of a a measured consensus place about about things like over diagnosis over treatment too much medicine well i think that's a little overstated that we're coming to the consensus i think we're saying is that um, you can have a, um, a conversation but unlike, without, unlike without a lot violence. Of, unlike a lot, yeah. but, but unlike a lot of politics, I think that we are now able to have nuanced discussions yeah. about benefits and harms of screening, yeah. um, which is a place that we weren't before. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the question is to what degree um, the New England Journal articles reflect a broader reality, which I think I'm not really... Well, they're editorial, so they're clear about, it, right? I mean, it ref- but it reflects their mm. editorial position, so right. they, which is clearly very different than BMJ mm. or um, um, JAM Internal Medicine, you know, these journals. So it is interesting that there these sort of um, the, the variation in, in the, their take on these things. Well, and I guess also just the mode of discussion, which I think is behind your question, which is about. Um, that I think that that it would be helpful to have debate. I mean, it's helpful to have debate if you can have productive debate that's not sort of about uh, the black swan or, you know, it's about the like what we know and that um, that 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 kind of productive debate can be helpful. I, I think the issue here is whether the tone um and, and and the quality of that debate isn't really helping us very much. Right. I think that the piece was just deliberately pro- provocative, and I don't. I think it just added, you know, a lot of heat. And I, I think um, that, that 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 really didn't serve um, the, the the ultimate debate very very well. Um, but I I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think you're. But you are raising an interesting point. It does seem like the different. Um, Journals are sticking out different editorial positions, and um, but it's good. But, you know, but, but, good. but it is funny though because at the very same time, New England Journal over the years has published much more yeah. about overdiagnosis than in the past, yeah. um, which is something that in the beginning. I mean, I think that BMJ um, 
you know, was much more open to new ideas. And these ideas were not very acceptable to New England Journal in the beginning. And I think that over time, you know, now you see this published in New England Journal, but that was not the case. I think it's fair to say um, that they're a more conservative vo voice, um, but yeah. But but I but I think that this whole area of inquiry wasn't, um, you know, it's taken a, a longer time for it to become regularly featured in New England Journal. Whereas I would say that BMJ and JAM Internal Medicine were much earlier on willing to consider these ideas and what's oftentimes you know, very difficult research to do. So it may be, you know, have, you know, it may be inherently observational at the beginning and have a host of, you know, sort of methodologic challenges. But I think that being open to sort of this new science and watching it evolve, I mean, I think that's been mm. very difficult. And I think that's mm -hmm. a deliberate choice, uh, at least on our side, to, to do that, to, um, to not try and let... I don't know the weight of history or conservatism or something, you know, um, dissuade us from exploring new ideas. And uh, I'm sure we've published articles in the past that um, have gone down the wrong route. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think having that debate and, and talking about about these things is the only way to actually, you know, examine the world around us uh, fully. Right. I mean, and I, I mean, I think this accusation of, you know, the journals having a conflict like pharma. I mean, <laughs> I, it's, well, it's inconceivable true. to me. I mean, here you have journals who've taken on major interests, which is sometimes really challenging, right? I imagine that's not that easy when you're taking on interests and that you're um, applying the same, you know, sort of um, standard to, to whatever you're doing. And this idea that um, because you're putting attention to this issue, that that equals bias, um, like the pharmaceutical industry. I, I, I can't. I, I can't understand that. But it's also internally consistent. In in um, in her essay, one of the black swans that she uses is actually a, a BMJ article. Mm. Um, so I just think that that's an absurd and unfair argument. Right. I mean, I think that's where it starts to cross the line into, uh, you yeah. know, I think what feels like a undermining kind of dialogue and, yeah. you know, rather than productive debate. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, people should go and read your essay because you uh, very clearly and very calmly and very uh, uh, well sort of deconstructed some of the arguments um, put forward in that article, I think. And uh, um if you have got doubts about overdiagnosis or you do, you know, see anything um, that you think needs answered, I would, I would encourage people to go and read that because uh, uh, I think you make the case very well. Well, thanks. Thanks. You've been listening to Steve Willishan and Lisa Schwartz talk about their essay, Overcoming Overuse. The way forward is not standing still. That's available now on bmj.com. We mentioned a couple of other things in that conversation. An essay by Iona Heath and a podcast with Stacey Carter. I'll link to those in the podcast text so they're easy to find. If you thought this was interesting, then you might want to have a listen to the podcast that we did at the last Preventing Overdiagnosis conference in Montreal. They're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're in most places now. 
We'll also be doing more from this year's conference, which is happening in August. So subscribe so you don't miss out on that. That's all for this episode. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.